Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Our reading today is from Mark chapter 14, verse 1 through 25. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in this whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, His disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare you for to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. They are prepared for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared for the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take this, my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So a, uh, about a decade ago, there was a fascinating experiment conducted by the Washington Post. They, um, they hired... Joshua Bell, one of the world's most famous and exceptional violinists, 
uh, who earns sometimes in his concerts up to a thousand dollars a minute for his his exceptional ability to play. He plays uh, on a Stradivarius valued at over three million dollars, one of the uh, rarest and most beautiful sounding instruments in the world. And uh, and so they hired Joshua Bell to play in the New York subway for 45 minutes during rush hour to play only the most exquisite masterpieces for the violin. Not necessarily familiar pieces, but pieces of exquisite beauty, of profound genius music by Bach and, and Mozart. And so he played in uh, the, the New York subway and he set his violin case out to accept tips. And of course the question was, well, how, how much will, will Joshua Bell uh, receive just giving this free concert impromptu in the middle of the New York subway? He made less than $35. He played for 45 minutes and the Washington Post had a, a video upon him watching people move back and forth. Nearly a thousand people passed by him without paying the least bit of attention as he played this most exquisite music. People just two nights before had paid $100 a ticket to see him in Boston at the, uh, at the concert hall. And yet, people are so distracted, moving along, hustling and bustling, trying to get to their 9-to-5 job, trying to get through the crowd, that they completely toned out this master musician and this masterpiece music. Really, only a handful listen. And you can watch the video of this. It's not made up. Uh, only a handful of people stopped to listen. One person, though, was named David Mortensen. And uh, he recognized, as he, was, as he was hearing this music, that it was something uh, extraordinary, something beyond. And he actually stopped. And he stayed there for several minutes to listen. And the Washington Post followed up with him to ask what, what he had experienced. And he said, whatever it was... He wasn't trained in classical music. He wasn't familiar with the pieces. But as he heard it, he said, whatever, whatever it was, it made me feel at peace. So he stopped and he listened. And then he went on. But the whole point of this experiment was to see whether uh, this context and the, our priorities of our day-to-day life, if that would affect our ability to see the beauty of this music. Uh, in, a, in a banal setting, the Washington Post asked, at an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend? And what was proven in that experiment was that if we're distracted, if we're focused on the, on the banal, the common, we do not see the beauty. But when we do, as Mortensen said, he experienced a peace in his life amidst this hustle and bustle that was not experienced by all those others. Today, as we look at this passage, I want to help us fix our eyes on the beauty of the gospel so that we can have an experience day to day that keeps us grounded and oriented in what is truly beautiful. I want us to see today that the gospel that we have is like Joshua Bell playing in the subway. It is beautiful music. It is music that will alter your life, that will astound you if you have ears to hear it. And when you hear the beauty of the gospel, it will stop you. It will lift you up. It will give you uh, the experience of transcendence in this world. It will give you a vision of life that is above the hustle and the bustle. 
I mean, we all know the power of beauty. Every guy in this room has done something awkward and silly and probably stupid for the girl that he said was just the most beautiful girl he'd ever seen. I, I, I won't tell you all of mine, but, but we know when we see beauty, it takes control of us. And we do strange things for it. You see, when we have the power of beauty, I believe it will help us. It will help us when we see the power of beauty in the gospel to take our worship and our prayer life and our spiritual disciplines out of that, that crusty realm of duty and bring us into delight. If we see the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the gospel, then being told you need to read your Bible or you need to pray more doesn't sound like, oh my goodness, that's just, ugh. That, that just sounds like eating paint or something. Or being at church doesn't sound like, well, if there's nothing better to do or if it doesn't get in the way of the game or one thing or the other. You see, when we see the beauty of the gospel, I believe our hearts will be moved from duty to delight. We will find the joy that the gospel has for us. We will know the peace that the gospel has for us. Regardless of the hustle and bustle of your life, regardless of what's uh, falling out, what's in chaos, what's, what's uh, getting stale, you will find peace when the beauty of the gospel is your vision. And it will orient us. We are made for this beautiful music. And when we are oriented to hear and to see the gospel as beautiful, we will not go after cheap substitutes. We will not pursue cheap, tangential, small pleasures in this world because the only thing that truly makes our heart beat and burst is the beauty of the gospel. And so all of the transient, small Earthly temptations that want to pull us from the way will not take our gaze because we will see the beauty of the gospel. And I believe that our passage today pulls open the veil for those who can see the beauty of Christ, the beauty of the gospel. I believe in our passage today that we see through these three different pictures a gospel that calls us to delight in the manifold beauty of Christ. Have you experienced the beauty of the gospel? Do you desire to be moved from duty to delight? Do you need a picture that will fix your mind and imagination so that the worldly pleasures that want to pull you away lose their allure? Then let us look together carefully at this passage and see how the gospel calls us to delight in the manifold beauty of Christ. If you have the, the handout, you can follow along. The first beauty of Christ that we experience in this passage is the beauty of Christ's presence. The beauty of Christ's presence is on display here as we look at verses 1 through 11. Now to remind us where we have been in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has come to Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. He has had a, 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 an encounter with the, the leaders of the temple. He has judged the temple and then he had this series of, of growing antagonism with the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the priests, and the elders as they are continuing to try and find a way to, to arrest him, to bring a charge against him. And then we had last week the, 
the, the Olivet Discourse where Jesus says this, this magnificent building, the temple is going to be destroyed. Not one stone is going to be standing upon another because I have come to replace the temple. It is now I who will reign. I am the one enthroned. I am the Son of Man seated at the right hand of glory. And so we have had this, this, uh, the, the, these encounters which have shown us the, the great breaking apart between the leadership of Israel and Jesus and the new people of God uh, that, are, that are being established around Jesus. We have come into what is called the Passion Narrative, chapters 14, 15, and 16, the story of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And we recognize after we've gone through these days in Jerusalem that the rejection has become hard. It has become stony and, and certain. Look at verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. The debate is over. The verdict to the, the leaders of Israel is clear. It's just a matter of finding the right charges because they are going to kill him. The course then is set. But as we see these, these ominous words about Jesus going to be killed, we also come into verse 3 and we discover that Jesus comes to have a meal in Bethany with this, this family. And it's, it's, it's dramatically different. While there is a plot for Jesus to be killed in verses 1 and 2, in the midst of this meal, there is a celebration and a demonstration of worship that is, that is beautiful and profound. What I believe we see in these first 11 verses is there are two responses that the gospel is ultimately going to, to work its way through to. You, you are either going to find yourself aligned with those who say Jesus has to go, Jesus has to be killed, or you are going to be those who see the beauty, who recognize the beautiful in Christ, and you seek to have him, and you seek to live for him, and you seek to show him in every way possible, that he has your heart. Because if you look down after, after this description of the meal, look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see, at the beginning, we have these people that are assembling to, to destroy Jesus. And then we have this picture of, of worship and sacrifice. But at the end, we see that one of the 12 breaks away and says, no, I'm going to be with the killers. These two responses are on display. And as you may have noticed, verses 10 and 11 seem to function as the conclusion of, of verses 1 and 2 which means that we are dealing once more with what has been called uh, a Markan sandwich. Verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11 are interrupted by the story of worship. And it is where it is, that is where I believe that, that Mark wants us to focus and to place our heart alongside this, this experience. When we look at verses 3 through 9, we see this meal. We see uh, it's at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. And we see a woman who is not named uh, experiencing Jesus in her presence. And I think when we look at this woman, we see the beauty of Christ's presence. When we allow ourselves to look through the eyes of the woman, 
we see the beauty of Christ's presence. You see, in verse 3, we are told that Jesus was in the house, was in her house. She is recognizing that the Lord, the the Son of Man, the the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the the one who has gone through Galilee healing the blind and the deaf, who has fed the 5,000, that one, that one is here in the house. And it completely transforms her understanding of the moment. I have in my house the Lord. The Lord is in my house with her. She is there with the Lord. Who is she? I don't know. Maybe she's Mary, the, the mother of, uh, or I mean, the, the sister of Lazarus. Uh, that's, that's a very likely possibility. But for Mark, we don't know. She's a nameless person. She's a, a, a nobody. She has no name. She's just a woman named Mary, one of the most, or not named one, she's just a woman without a name in a house in Bethany. And she knows that the Lord is there in her midst. And so what her mind is doing is the exact opposite of what the, the leadership of Israel is doing in verse 1 and 2. They are sitting together saying, what are we going to do to kill him? And the woman you can see in this passage is, is there, what do I do with the moment that the Lord is in my presence? How, wh- what am I to do here? How do, I, how do I respond to this? My heart is, is moving, it's, 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 it's beating with, with a, a excitement. What, what do I do? And she does the most beautiful thing. You see, in her house was this bottle, an alabaster bottle full of nard, just a word for perfume, rare, precious perfume, probably came from India. I, am, I, I can imagine that this, this jar of nard had, uh, had been in this house for a long time and probably set as a, as, a, as a focal point. This is the nice thing in this house. This is their one nice thing. Every one of our houses, we have this, this thing in our house, you know, just a, it's just a notch better than everything else, or maybe several notches better. It's the nice thing. It's the focal point. It's what we talk about. Oh, yeah, uh, that, that came from India. Let me tell you the story. The, the text tells us that it was so precious that it was worth 300 denarii. Uh, denarii is a, is a day's pay. So nearly a year's wages in this bottle. It was an expensive thing. It was a precious thing. Uh, if, if they had 300 denarii out in the wilderness, they could have bought enough bread for the 5,000. It's a big thing. It's precious. But her heart is, is overwhelmed with, oh my goodness, the Lord is in my presence what am I going to do? And she sees the bottle of nard. She sees this heirloom, the one nice thing. And she says, that's it. This is the day for why I have that one nice thing. This is the occasion that one nice thing has been appointed for. She took it. She broke it open. Broke it in a manner that it could not be put back together. Because she recognized this nard is the most beautiful thing I have and I want to give it to the most beautiful person I've ever met. 
the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ in my presence. And so she breaks the, 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 the alabaster flask, breaking it so it can be put together again. It's a total gift. N- none of this nard is going to make it to another day. This, this flask is not going to sit out in the open for another day to say, look at this nice thing. It's over. This is its moment. This is what it's been made for. It is broken open completely. And all of the nard, all of that beautiful perfume fills the room. Everybody can smell it. It's probably overwhelming. Nobody's supposed to have that much perfume in one place at one time. But the whole room is filled with this great fragrance. And she places this on Jesus' feet. All of this is to show how inexpressible her delight is in the beauty of Christ. As the room overwhelms, as the flask is now ruined, as the preciousness of that nard is now used up, she is communicating how beautiful is the presence of Christ that I will give my most precious, I will sacrifice everything I have to reveal I have met Christ, and he is beautiful. She recognized in the room what David Mortensen recognized in the subway. Everybody else was distracted by the nard. How can you possibly break open that bottle of nard for this occasion? You could have sold that and fed the poor. You see, they were caught up in the practical and they could not see that there was something truly beautiful in their midst, that this occasion was meant to express overwhelming beauty in worship. In the middle of of her doing this, the, the, the other people that are there, including the disciples, what do they do? They become indignant, become angry at this gesture. They begin to scold her. But he was beautiful to her. She is ignoring the indignation. She is there rejoicing because she is fixated upon Christ. You see what happens when the beauty of Christ's presence breaks into your life. You will demonstrate it by extravagant responses of love and rejoicing and celebration. I think of the story of of, of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, the tax collector who who was uh, hated by everybody. And Jesus walked by him and saw him in the sycamore tree and said, Today I'm having a meal with you. And this man whose only thing he had was the riches that he had defrauded from all the people he had been taxing, so burst into joy that he, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of the poor and I'm going to pay back fourfold of everything that I have taken. He had experienced the piercing beauty of the Lord who loved him and he saw that as so beautiful that his life was transformed by it. He saw the beauty of Christ's presence and that is what this woman is experiencing. I love in the book of Revelation chapter 4, we read of of these 24 elders who sit around the throne of God, and they worship him night and day. 
And we're told these words about them in, in verse 10 of chapter 4. The 24 elders fall down before him who are seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. You see, when they are in the presence of beauty, they cast their crowns before him. That's what the bottle of nard is. It's our crown. It's all our glory. We want to throw it to him because he deserves it. That is what the beauty of Christ does. We are told that uh, Jesus silences the, the people who are indignant and says that what this woman did, did was a beautiful thing. That she, unbeknownst to her, anointed him for burial. Jesus knows that he's just a couple days from, from the cross, from the tomb. Do you know that this passage, what this woman does, is the last kindness Jesus receives in this world? After this is Judas. After this is the Garden of Gethsemane and the arrest. After this is the trial before his uh, the, the, the priests and the Sanhedrin who will punch him in the face and spit on him. After this is before Pilate, the scourging, the nails, the carrying the cross, the agony. This is the one beautiful thing that occurs to Jesus in his last week. It was appointed for this. It is the last kindness. It is an island of beauty in the midst of all of this betrayal and rejection. Because as soon as we see this passage conclude, we are then told Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. I don't know about you, but Judas Iscariot is a very uncomfortable mystery to me. Judas Iscariot has been with Jesus for probably three years. He's seen all of this. He knows all of this. He should more than anyone recognize the beauty of Christ. But something happens that Judas says, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm off of this. This isn't for me. And he betrays Jesus. I mean, look how close to Jesus Judas was. At the Lord's table, he was seated at the table. He was dipping into the cup with Jesus. He is one of the 12, that super select group of disciples who have been appointed to, to know Jesus intimately night and day for three years. But then... He decides to betray. How? Why? Look at what he ultimately does. He he takes money. He takes money. Matthew chapter 26 uh, tells us that Judas went and said, what will you give me if I betray Jesus to you? And we know that it's a pittance. It's, It's 30 pieces of silver. 
Judas had a relationship with Jesus that could be bought, that could be paid out. There was a, a, a point where Jesus was not valuable to him. There was a price. That tells us everything about what, what Judas's mindset and framework was towards Jesus. He's good to me as long as he's useful to me. Once he's not useful, once he doesn't accomplish my ends and my goals, what can I get? That is a vastly different perspective. Judas represents everybody whose interest in Jesus is he's useful to me, who sees Jesus as a means to an end. The woman represents everybody who recognizes that Jesus is beautiful. Having Jesus is the end itself. The reason I want heaven is because I want Jesus forever. Have you found Jesus beautiful? Psalm 27.4 says this, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Christ invites us to gaze upon his beauty, the beauty of the Lord. Is that why you are here? Is that why you worship? He is present This is the gift of the gospel. We are not coming together on Sunday to say, I did my good deed, I went to church. We don't pray because it's it's what we're supposed to do. It's because it's communion. It's coming close to the one who loves us more than we can ever understand. When we recognize Jesus is beautiful, we move from duty to delight. I love how Paul deals with this in his own personal life. In Philippians 1.23, he is thinking about continuing in ministry or, or, or his uh, ultimate death and, and departing to be with the Lord. And he says these words, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. I mean, Paul lived in this tension. What am I... I really wish I could die to be with the Lord because he's beautiful. That's my desire to be in his presence. You see, when Jesus is beautiful, you don't have a price because he's priceless. And let me say, the days are coming where the world is going to say, what's your price? And if he is not priceless, the days are coming where you'll sell out. The beauty of Christ's presence. Second is the beauty of Christ's peace. So we see the course has been set, but now we see the plan put in motion. Jesus sends his disciples or two of his disciples to prepare the Passover meal. And we know that after this, there is betrayal. Look at verse 21 quickly. The Son of Man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You see, 
all that is going to happen with Judas and with the priests, ultimately they are following a plan. They are going as it is written. Jesus knows what is ahead of him. He knows the suffering that is ahead of him. And yet, as we look at this, we see him composed. I see Jesus enjoying the Passover. I see Jesus present and fully present with his disciples. Even as he knows his death is near, even as Gethsemane is only hours away, we see in Jesus a peace and a delight to be in the presence of his disciples this last night. And so we see here the beauty of Christ's peace. Jesus wants to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And so it's important to understand the context of of the Passover. You can read about it in Exodus 11 and 12, but it's the story of of God delivering his people out of slavery, uh, out of Egypt, and making them his own people. And the Passover comes on the the last plague, the plague where the firstborn is going to be taken in in all the houses of, of, of Egypt, except that all the people in Israel are told to take a lamb to sacrifice it and to coat the blood of the lamb above their doorway so that on the night when the Lord is going to take all of the firstborn, if he sees the blood over the doorway, he passes over that door. His wrath and judgment does not come to that household. And so the Passover meal was instituted to remember this event where God delivers his people through the judgment of of the firstborn in Egypt to be his own people. A a summary of... um, well, we'll say that in just a second. So the Passover meal that was being celebrated is oriented uh, around four cups. There are four cups of wine that are being consumed. There's also the unleavened bread, there are herbs and fruit, and there is the Passover lamb. This was a, a, a set meal, a, a, a prescribed meal to celebrate. As these four cups are drunk, uh, they, they are uh, consumed around the various um, acts in Exodus uh, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, which I'll, I'll read very quickly. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall uh, know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out, of, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The four cups that were drunk during the Passover meal corresponded to first, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The second cup to, I will deliver you from slavery to them. The third cup to, I will redeem you with my outstretched arm. And then the fourth cup to, I will make you my people. So these are the four cups that are drunk during the meal. And they are drunk in that order to remember those different events. Now, here's what's significant. Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal. He's celebrating it the same way that all of these disciples have celebrated it year in and year out, and their parents before them and their parents before them back generations. And so they are used to all of these different elements and the significance of all of these different elements. And as they come to the bread, the unleavened bread, where they would say these words from Deuteronomy 16.3, Jesus would say these words, this is the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life may, be, uh, may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. They ate unleavened bread to remember that they were taken out in haste. And it's called the bread of affliction. 
And so they're all prepared to hear about the bread of affliction, about being taken out of Egypt. And instead, Jesus says these words, verse 22. Take, this is my body. Take, this is my body. Suddenly, Jesus is showing that this Passover meal that has been celebrated through generations has, has, has reached a new existence, a new understanding that the, that the one who is in their midst is telling them that the Passover meal is now to be understood around me and around what I am about to do. Jesus is astoundingly reinterpreting the Passover meal, the message of salvation, to be now centered in himself. When he says, this is my body, he is speaking about the bread of affliction. And he is saying, in effect, that he will be the bread of life to us because he became the bread of affliction for us. He bore the affliction of our sins, our betrayal, and our rejection. Then, 23 and 24, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The cup that Jesus likely has reinterpreted is uh, the third cup. Uh, the reason we can, we can uh, deduce that is because uh, the bread that was just dealt with is, uh, comes after the first two cups. The third cup again, is the cup of redemption. I will deliver you out by my strong arm. And as they are prepared to hear about the deliverance of of God in that third cup, he instead says, this is my blood for many. Jesus is saying that he is the substitute that will stand in the place of his people. He is saying in this cup that we have peace Because Christ bled in our place. This is my blood for many. This blood, he says, is poured out. So just as the woman pours out her nard to fill the room, the the Lord pours out his precious blood for us. like the nard, but this from Jesus to us. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a fancy word for the, the, the sacrifice that takes away God's anger for our sin, that removes God's judgment from over us. This is love that the one who was the Lord had his blood poured out for us. How beautiful is God's peace. When we come to this table, this is the table of God's peace. It's not a ritual. It's a beautiful picture of God's love. Praise God. Now, where is the lamb in this story? Where, where do we find the lamb? 
Mark makes no mention of a lamb. That doesn't mean there wasn't a lamb on the table. But in, in terms of the text, we don't see a lamb. Where is the lamb? The lamb is the Lord Jesus, who is sitting at table with them. John the Baptist said in, in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, in this meal, who gives his body and his blood, becomes the true and ultimate Passover Lamb. God's judgment passes over us because it fell on him. We put ourselves underneath Christ, underneath his sacrifice, and we are spared the judgment of God. The table of the Lord announces the Lord's peace. And what better image for knowing that we have peace with God than that he has given us a dinner table to meet him at? We are invited to supper with the Lord. And I think that's beautiful. Now, third, we've seen the beauty of Christ's presence. We've seen the beauty of Christ's peace. Third is the beauty of Christ's celebration. Look now at verse um, 22 again. Uh, No, 24. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let us not miss that Jesus has spilled the blood of the covenant. When he calls that the blood of the covenant, that's just another word for the blood of God's promise. That if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. It is faith alone in Christ alone, as the Reformation so helpfully revived for us, that saves us. We put our faith completely in the gift of Christ who lived righteously and died perfectly for us, that gives us salvation. It is the blood of the covenant. If, it is, if you have claimed Christ, then you have God's promise that he will see you through to the end, no matter what. But there's something even more beautiful here. This is the beauty of Christ's celebration. Jesus says, I will not drink again. He has said this just after the third cup. That means that Jesus has left the fourth cup on the table. It is there undrunk. He gets up and there is a cup on the table that was to be drunk by him in the Passover meal that he has left behind. The fourth cup is the celebration of his people gathered around him. It is the celebration of heaven. And he's left it, a fourth cup. Why? Because that fourth cup represents consummation. He says he is waiting to drink it new, to drink it again in the kingdom of God. Christ is saving the cup of consummation for the great banquet at the end of time, which is described for us in the book of Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is where the fourth cup waits. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus will not enjoy that cup without us. Jesus is waiting to drink the fourth cup until he drinks it new in the kingdom of God when all his people are with him at the wedding. Now think about that. Think about that. Marvel at this idea. Jesus has left the fourth cup to declare this. His joy is not complete until we are with him. His people complete his joy. I mean, what love is this? The Lord of glory, the one who lives in the perfection of the Trinity, has told us, I leave the fourth cup because I will be incomplete until all things are finished and you are gathered around my table. The joy of Jesus is this, Ephesians 5.27, that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Jesus is telling us he's like a groom whose greatest moment on their wedding day is when the doors open and he sees his bride in this beautiful immaculate dress in all the splendor and beauty that she can muster and his heart is nearly stopped with joy. Jesus is saying that's the joy that he is waiting. He is waiting to drink the fourth cup until the church, you and I and all who are in Christ, stand before him as his bride. This is the thing that's so beautiful. We are beautiful in his eyes. The church has the delighted gaze of Christ upon it. Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. All who are in the church experience Christ shining his face upon them. Now think about that. Is that beautiful to you? That the Lord of glory went to the depths of the cross, poured out his blood for you, and waits to celebrate the joy of your salvation by leaving the fourth cup for when you were with him. That picture of beauty should pierce us. That picture of beauty should break the jar of whatever nard is in our life that we can give for his glory. My friends, turn to him and let his face shine upon you. Now what better way is there to conclude today's message than to celebrate this precious meal? To celebrate right here the beauty that here we meet Christ present. We experience Christ's peace and we recognize that we are part of Christ's celebration. Let us now listen to these words again. Listen to them in the context of the beauty of the gospel. On the night that our Lord was betrayed, 
He took bread. He broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In like manner, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many. Drink this as often as you do in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He is coming back, and we will have this meal with him, and we will drink the fourth cup in his presence. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.